You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to a very special episode of the Anarchaeologist Podcast. Apologies for not being very on time with the last few episodes, but hopefully this one will make up for it. Today I'm talking to the wonderful Gabriel Mushenkska. I can't get your name right ever, and that's not a problem. Who, well last time we talked, uh, we talked about the Archaeologists of London project. So, Gabe, thanks for being on the show. Thanks. For having me and thanks for honestly not mangling my name any worse than the vast majority of people do i i, I got it wrong last time as well so oh, yeah <laughs> but uh how is the project actually we talked about last time uh was the archaeologists of london wasn't it it was funded yeah. on micropaths if i remember correctly yes um and i was skeptical about crowdfunding initially and yeah it turned out i wasn't too wrong to be skeptical, we, we didn't we didn't quite raise as much money as we hoped to, um, but actually we've raised enough to um, do the, the to, to do the most important part of of setting up the project, which is um, getting um, training for myself and for the volunteers um, in all history recording and transcribing skills so hopefully this is all moving very slowly indeed but within the next six months we hope to um carry out that training and um, get started Mm -hmm. um the thing that has been most helpful for that well one of the the problems and one of the reasons the main reasons that we were fundraising apart from raising money for um training was to, to get hold of some high quality recording equipment um, to be able to create archive quality recordings. And I discovered that there were a crate of very expensive digital sound recorders sitting in a filing cabinet in my department, abandoned for several years, still in, in their boxes, unopened, brand new, each, each one worth about £400. Wow. So the thing I thought would be the hardest part of the fundraising actually hasn't has turned out not to be necessary, which is good because I got not only the fundraising not going so well, I got turned down for a couple of um, grants that I applied for as well, um, which is one of the um, joys of, well, academic life in particular is being turned down f- uh, for grants. Um, but it looks like things are going to be okay. And yeah, we've got the equipment, we've got money for um, training. Um, all we need now is time to get started. What did your strata, uh, stratigraphic analysis of these digital recorders when they were in the soil of the department, <laughs> what did you find? <laughs> um, I think what I've learned um, from that, which, which is, um, I think, true of almost any large inst- institution, is that there is a surprising amount of useful stuff lying around forgotten and that the secret is just to ask the right people. And that will be... As in any, um, again, any large organization, the people who actually have the, the knowledge and the um, important you know, ability 
to help you are people like the building manager, the caretaker, people like that, people who actually know. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a um, something that was reinforced for me on that. Yeah, and that's always that's always an interesting thing is that like uh, it, it's it is always fun. Uh, cool to find stuff so uh, is that project um, are you kind of uh, hoping to get that uh, kind of sorted in the next couple of months I mean are there ways that people can help you out uh, um, I'm hoping to get started um, again as I say with uh, training for myself and volunteers probably in August or, or September um, what I'm still looking for is more people who want, who want to be part of the project now Ideally, people who are based in London, but actually the the group of people who I'm interested in interviewing, um, who are people who have ever worked in professional archaeology in London in the post-Second World War period, they're spread around the world. So um, I'm quite keen for people who are interested and, and willing to take part wherever they m- may be. Um, equally, if people want to volunteer themselves as potential interviewees that would be very helpful as well ah but that that sounds absolutely excellent uh, is there a website uh for it um not at the moment no i'm not that organized um and we've been um yeah, we, we've been working through the, um, the 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 micropass things so far um and i've been getting contact with that for now it's it's been done through word of mouth part of the problem has been one of the grants we applied for and to turn down for was a Heritage Lottery Fund grant. Mm. And they don't like to fund things that have already started. Yeah. Understandably. So we were very keen to not have anything up on a website that might look that like we, we'd already started. Okay, yeah. Um, so I, I may well apply to them again. Mm. I may well get turned down again. Probably will. Um but uh, yeah, so that, that's 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 one of the reasons why it, it's it's been quite quiet on that front up till now. No, obviously that ties in with your interest into like kind of uh, Second World War London and actually archaeology uh, about recent conflict. I mean, the thing is, to me, the Second World War is one of those things that almost gets too much coverage, or at least parts. Of it gets too much coverage in the societal debate about history. I mean, you just look at any sort of magazine rack and you see Winston Churchill or, you know, uh, fighting on the Western Front, D-Day. And, you know, obviously those are important things that happen, but don't they get a bit too much attention? I I don't know. How do you feel about that? Um, I can see absolutely, particularly the way um, history was taught to me and I think many many other people in, in British schools. My experience of doing, yeah, sort of 11 to 18 education, you get a lot of Nazis, you get a lot of Second World War. Um, and so that can, I think, like anything you learn in school, the same way studying books in school can spoil those books for you forever. I think you can kind of over uh, over um, dose on Second World War, War history. And I think there's, it's absolutely true that it is, as well as that, it is embedded in our um, culture in ways that are, I think, problematic in many respects. The mythologies, um, the bits which are emphasised or overemphasised, 
And I think, yeah, the, so some of the, the bits which are overplayed the most are the idea of Britain, this tiny vulnerable island, mm-hmm. holding out alone against Europe completely occupied by the n- n- Nazis and we were at risk of in- invasion at any, mo- any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of crap. I mean, Britain was not alone. We we still had an empire, this, you know, which was the biggest thing the world's ever seen. We still had a terrifyingly formidable navy. We had one of the most overly invested in aircraft industries in the entire world, which once it got started, as we know, um, was an almost impossible, a force almost impossible to to stop, and um, carried on pounding German cities into into a dust long after it was necessary to, to do, um, do so. So I think there's, it's to cut a long story short, it's precisely the cultural ubiquity of particular representations of the Second World War that make it so important to study it in a much more critical way. And there's two aspects of that. Well, one is a more critical overall historical view, which takes into account the fact that it, it would basically saw the beginning of the end of the uh, British Empire. That in the aftermath of the Second World War, you see independence um, struggles in India. You see independence struggles in various African countries in the Pacific, um, in the Middle East. And... That's all the. That's part of the legacy of the Second World War, the post-colonial legacy, which people don't talk about as much as they do about Churchill and Spitfires and shit. Um, and the other part, and I think the thing where archaeology can really make an important contribution is bringing it down to the ground level of ordinary people's experiences. Mm-hmm. And this has been. I mean, this has been a, a struggle in the historiography of the Second World War. Um, since at least since the 1960s, at least if not earlier, which is the the debate around the idea of a people's war, what it means to have total war that tears your society apart, that that that, that penetrates the entirety of of your um, culture, your your society, and engulfs ordinary people. And I think archaeology can really provide an interesting bottom-up people's history viewpoint on many aspects of, of this alternative history of, of the Second World War. Not alone, obviously. This is I'm talking about archaeology combined with historical research, oral historical research. Um, contemporary archaeology, historical archaeology is, by definition, interdisciplinary. If you try and do it in any other way, you're doing crap research. Um, but I think archaeology has a, a unique and important contribution in those areas. Definitely. And it, it sounds like that that is the best way to move forward. But I think one of my <clears throat> concerns is obviously a growing sense of right-wing nationalism that uses the false ideologies of the Second World War, especially, for example, I don't know if you've seen recently that uh, groups like Britain First use the poppy symbol and the kind of support our troops kind of mantra that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, anybody who gives their life to fight for a country, I'm sure, like, is worthy of praise, but that doesn't mean you have to fully agree with what the country's doing. I think, for me, it's interesting to look at the symbolism 
that seems to have been left over from the Second World War, especially to do with uh, the poppies. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, poppies, I, I think of more of a First World War yeah. thing, and we are in the, in the midst of anniversaries, of, the 100th anniversaries of the First World War and the 75th anniversaries of the Second World War, mm-hmm. so we are completely embedded in this national memorial bullshit culture. And I think... I agree completely. The ways in which these are co-opted by um, nationalist groups, by um, very, very um, unpleasant anti-immigrant Islamophobic organisations, is hugely problematic. And I think there is, you know, obviously the the, the, the main blame lies with them. But I think um, the organisations which see themselves as the um, standard bearers of war commemoration and veterans organizations need to be more vocal in um, disclaiming those kind of ideologies and in stepping away from them. And I think what, what, what I find strange, particularly with the Second World War, is you can just as powerfully make a case for Second World War history as a history of, of anti-fascism. Mm. Now, that's without uh, over simplifying it and saying that it was a struggle against Nazism because that was crap. It was, you know, it was y- 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 European politics on a, la- on a large scale, all kinds of complexity. The Allies, Britain, America, were not anti-fascist by any stretch of the, of the imagination. You only needed to live in those uh, societies with segregation, all kinds of crap, to know they were not anti-fascist. But there is anti-fascist elements within that history which you can uh, draw out. And I think that's an important lesson when dealing with uh, contemporary organisations. And I can give you an example. Um, Just, I think about in the last couple of weeks, um, a guy called Morris Beckman um, passed away, and he was a Second World War veteran. Beckman was in the Merchant Navy in the Second World War, so he was in, he was in the the um, convoys um, uh, across the Atlantic, um, which, as you may know, had huge um, casualty rates, very vulnerable to German U-boats and air attack, mm-hmm. and lost yeah significant numbers of uh, people. But they they, they um, kept the uh, war effort supplied. In the aftermath of the Second World War, when he returned to normal life, I. Uh, Beckman and some of his friends found that um, fascism in Britain was rising very fast in the immediate post-war years. The the, the fascist organisations which had been very active in the 1930s were springing up straight away as if nothing had happened. Um, So Beckman was part of a group of of Jewish ex-servicemen organised around sports sports clubs and um, they called themselves the 43 group, I think based on the fact that there were 43 of them to begin with. And their strategy as, you know, ex-servicemen, ex-marines, ex-soldiers, all kinds, was to attend fascist meetings, beat the shit out of everyone there, and close it down. (laughs) And this was on the grounds that most of the fascists, most of the prominent ones, had actually been interned during the Second World War, imprisoned as potential uh, sort of enemy collaborators. Mm. So they were not, they did not have the military experience and um, and um, training that this 
group of vigilantes had. And over about the next three or four years after the end of the Second World War, um, a yeah, an organised groups of of mostly but not exclusively of Jewish ex-service men and women infiltrated, um, spied on, uh, but m- mostly violently disrupted any attempt to organise fascism in this country. Whoa, and they whoa, whoa, whoa. were successful. Are you telling me that like the script for Inglorious Bastards was actually based on something? <laughs> like I just see that parallel now. <laughs> um, it's sort of like Inglorious Bastards, but but with um, much more mundane levels of violence. This is more kind of uh, yeah, kind of after the pubs close kind of violence rather than second world war style yeah. violence i don't think anyone was actually killed just no. a few broken bones here and there along the grounds along the argument i think someone made the argument if your ribs are broken you can't attend fascist meetings which is a pragmatic point of view that i, I do subscribe to it is i would say anybody with broken ribs definitely don't go to fascist meetings yeah so so anyway i, I think the, this the, these that's just one example um, of hidden histories, forgotten histories, um, histories that have been marginalised because, yeah, because they are um, not what people want mm. to hear. And they're marginalised universally, pretty much. I mean, uh, my understanding is that this was not, yeah, this was not something which um, was popular in the press at, at the time or anything, even though, you know, even though they were beating up fascists just like they were in the war a few years before. Yeah, and uh, like I completely understand. I mean, that's that's another interesting thing that I think is coming to the fore is this idea of hidden histories, um, things that are purposely forgotten rather uh, or purposely ignored rather than, you know, forgotten or hidden because of, um, you know, machinating forces or you know, uh, just that we don't know. I think there's there's an interesting area of study there. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that you had groups like that operating and yet, obviously, they were almost like they're, they're a part of for, forgotten history. You know, if everybody forgets, then it's almost they are, like but, but, they don't exist. But it's, but it's also, it, it's it's that the key message linking into what you were saying before, which is that the, the 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 history of the Second World War, the story, the legacies don't belong to fascists. Yeah, this is the important so my sort of um, takeaway point on this. Fascists don't own this. Mm. In fact, like I say, it, it's not entire. Yeah, it, I mean, for example, you could argue that yeah, some of the the, the kind of um, violent elements, you know, the violent aspects of the of the Second World War and some of the, the atrocities that were were committed against the um, German people were anti-fascist. And I would not go that far. There were, you know, war crimes are war crimes. Yep. But you can still, um, yeah, you can still look at this as a nuanced history. Mm. I mean, the, the, this, is the, this is the balance, isn't it? It's that, you know, there's a difference between looking at a nuanced history and a sympathetic history. 
um, because obviously there's people who use the trope of, well, you know, Hitler helped uh, people out of an economic recession and, you know, oh, Hitler was good for the country. And, you know, there's this, this almost like this sympathy. Oh, yeah. He was a vegetarian. He was kind to animals yeah. all that shit. And it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, people are like, but that's a nuanced history, you know, when really it isn't. It's, uh, you know, it's a history built on tropes and it's a history that's almost trying to beg a sympathetic view of absolutely abhorrent acts, you know, and it, 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 it's a difficult line to walk, isn't it? You know, between um, trying to, you know, obviously trying to explore a history with lots of different ideas and lots of different people and a history that's maybe problematic in of itself. And maybe that's why a lot of people prefer a simpler kind of like, you know where the battle lines are drawn kind of history. Well, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. Absolutely, no, no, not only of history, but of um, current affairs and politics as well. Um, people, well, not all people, many people like to be able to divide the world in a very childish way into goodies and baddies. Um, those people, people terrify me because it's not goodies and baddies. There are... Sh- Shades of of grey absolutely everywhere, and if you can't, if people can't deal with that degree of complexity, if they're actually forced to think about things, which, as we know, most people try and avoid thinking about things that they possibly can in every circumstance, being forced to to um, confront those 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 complexities and those kind of um, shades of of grey make people uncomfortable and angry. Mm-hmm. Um. Which they can, you know, again, my opinion, they can just suck it up. <laughs> yeah. I say that, you know, as a professional historian, ed- an educator, I say, I say suck it up. That's, that's my, my helpful contribution. Yeah. No, of course. And the thing is, like, I was reading something recently, and it was um, a guy over in America who's a liberal professor, and he says, what scares me most is my liberal students. And he goes on about, you know, that a lot of the time people uh, have this, there's an argument between what people call social social justice warriors and people who are, oh, we're just trying to pragmatically live, you know, and everything. And and (laughs) it's, it's funny that, you know, people feel as if, you know, everything will offend somebody. You know, and everything. There's always an offensive thing. Oh, if, even if you admit that this is true, it's offensive and all this. And people don't seem to realize that you know, having a discussion that's open to uh, uh, you know, like other people's voices. People don't realize there are narratives that exist within kind of society's view. I mean, uh, this is the one great thing about archaeology is you can be you can deconstruct what those narratives mean you can be reflexive about the work that you do i mean do you feel that do you feel reflexive in the work you do do you feel um, flexible? I... <laughs> or should i say reflexible is that reflexible <laughs> well i'm yeah I, I i'm physically incredibly inflexible i'm one of the least fit people but i think um re- reflexivity in practice means taking a your critical stance towards your own work, which I hope I do. And most powerfully, I think this is something which everyone has has problems with, just 
being able to admit that you're wrong when presented with new evidence and re revising your actions and perspectives accordingly. And that is incredibly rare. Well, not, not terribly, not surprisingly, but um, the degree to which people who might otherwise appear to be intellectuals mm -hmm. are thunderingly inflexible um, and un un unable or unwilling to change their mind when presented with inconvenient evidence is something which constantly terrifies me, actually. Mm. So, yeah, I think I try and be re reflexive precisely because the alternative is a tyranny. And how, how would you, how would you, if somebody wanted to be reflexive in their work, what's the best thing for them to do? I mean, like, how, like, obviously you want to look at your own work critically, but how do you go about doing that properly, do you think? I don't know. I mean, partly... A, a, big part of it from my perspective is not taking yourself or your work too seriously um not being too much in love with any um particular perspective at any particular angle um there's a line from i think it was i think it's a quote from oliver cromwell um said i beseech you in the bowels of christ think it possible that you might be mistaken now I'm not sure what what the uh, context is that particularly flowery language, and I've certainly gotten got not much time for Oliver, Oliver um, Cromwell as a person, but th that for me is the the um, core of reflexivity is a constant doubting voice in the back of your mind saying this could all be a load of load of bollocks, you know? Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, exactly, and I think that's that's uh, a great way of looking at it because ultimately everything you do is influenced by yourself in some way you know i don't think i think we've got to the point where objectivity is very much a thought of the past how, how do you feel about objectivity oh i've got a very objective view of it i, I think it's massively overrated um objectivity mm -hmm. no i think it's it's an illusion mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think it's a particularly interesting thing to strive for either. Mm. I prefer argument. I prefer um, back and forths. Um, yeah, I think intellectual life is and ought to be um, dynamic, mm. without holy cows, without um, yeah, without, without things which are seen as completely objectively solid and unmovable. Mm -hmm. But and I think that this is, this is good for actual for individuals and groups as well to operate in this in this perspective, um, to to have healthy degrees of scepticism about pretty much everything, to have people who are willing to take the sort of um, court of jester mm. perspective and just ask awkward questions, um, make trouble, stir sh. sh shit up i mean this is i mean for example in my own life i'm very fortunate to be married to someone who is not an academic and doesn't take any of my work particularly seriously i mean you know mm -hmm. doesn't ridicule it but is has a healthily skeptical perspective on what could easily become um intellectual masturbation yep it's great to have someone looking over your shoulder and be like the fuck are you writing this is crap <laughs> It's it, honestly, it's it's incredibly mm -hmm. helpful, incredibly healthy, because the worst thing. This comes back to what you were saying about 
um, intellectual intellectual environments where, where where certain things are not sayable and not questionable. Echo chambers where everyone thinks the same thing and only speaks the, in the same way about the same things are thunderingly boring. Yeah, they will never move forward. They will never be um, yeah intellectually dynamic spaces, mm. and I think people lose out on 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 that, and it can really give people skewed views of the world. Now, a good example of this was um, the recent. And I hate to raise this general election. Yeah. I, 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 I oh, hate to politics, it. man. Come I'm, on. Are we trying to keep I'm the so, politics out of the show, okay? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, I won't, go on. I won't name, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bring any, my politics into it, but let's just say if if the election had been based on what I saw on Twitter from people I follow, mm-hmm. it would have looked very different indeed. Mm-hmm. Because I don't commonly interact with people with political views that are strikingly opposed to my own mm-hmm. because those people are assholes, obviously, and they would say the same <laughs> about me in their turn and they'd be right. But the, that, that's the problem when you're in an echo, ch- echo chamber where everyone thinking in broadly similar ways, um, you, you, your, your view of the world is, a, is yeah, mm-hmm. problematically blinkered. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as I will... Yeah. Going to politics, I promise. <laughs> no, and that, you're completely right. But um, you know, it's it's always a a battle between you know not having obviously not having things that are sacred and unquestionable, but also being appropriate. You know, and I feel that sometimes you know people go the whole hog and basically say, well, anything I say is appropriate, and nobody can tell me otherwise. You know what I mean? Like. Not really. Well, what, what what kind of assholes are you talking about? I'm I'm talking about people who basically take who take the nothing is sacred as a as a way to kind of you know say anything inappropriate and say well hey you know nothing nothing is sacred. I mean there are people who, uh, for example, use slurs and say well you can't silence me because you know anything goes. I can say whatever anything I want and. Yeah. You know, the uh, the idea is basically, well, I'm on the same footing as everybody else, when that's not necessarily the the case, you know? All right, I'm back with Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm, and I want to ask you about the boot camps that you put on in Los Angeles. Um, we've talked a lot about what's on The Art of Charm podcast, but what can people expect from attending a live boot camp? Sure. So people come in from all over the world and attend our boot camps in Hollywood, California. Uh, Right now we've got guys from Denmark. We have a guy from China, which is kind of random, not the usual. Uh, And all over the U.S., Canada, U.K., and even Australia, which is great. Uh, And the men's version is actually residential. So they stay in the house that we have. We have a sweet three-story house with like a gym on the roof and it's our classrooms in there and stuff. Yeah, and so what we do is we teach nonverbal communication, vocal tonality, body language, eye contact, how to exhibit confident uh, nonverbal communication, how to actually read it in others, a little bit of negotiation persuasion type of uh, stuff so that you can deal with difficult people, uh, a lot of sort of hacks with human behavior, and then we drill it and film you in interactions with other people, and we're like, okay, this is what you're doing right, this is where you need improvement, and then we bring you out during the day and at night, and we also have coaches go out with you then too, and then you get feedback, and we sort of fine-tune all of your interactions. and. 
it's not trying to get you to become a weird like fake version of you we're actually subtracting so we're not adding things onto your personality we're subtracting things that you do like weird little ticks that you probably wouldn't do if you were comfortable uh, weird little flavels that you do and say when you're nervous or when you're trying to get something from somebody or when you don't know what to do and we kind of iron all of that out so it's uh if you've ever used a foam roller, it's kind of like a foam roller for your personality. <laughs> and, and I wanted to point out, too, this isn't just for, uh, you know, guys looking to hook up with girls, as, as you say. One, of the, one no. of the last podcasts I listened to from The Art of Charm, there was an alumni on there that uh, was mentioning, I mean, he's been married for like 20 years. He's got, I don't know, three, four, five kids. And he went down there and it, it changed his life. You know, he just wanted to be a better person. Yeah, exactly. It's not about hooking up with girls or more guys or whatever. It's not about dating exclusively. It overlaps in every area. And, you know, like you've, if you listen to the podcast, you've heard guests from one of our recent guys. Was, he's a Canadian intelligence agent. And he talks about how to read people and how to use rapport and build rapport and build confidence socially in, you know, for his purposes and how that overlaps to civilians. And we've got all kinds of stuff from like, here's how to get people attracted to you all the way to here's how to negotiate the price of your car. I mean, that's anything that has to do with applied human psychology. It's on the show and it's what we teach at our boot camps at our school. Nice. Well, that sounds great. In the meantime, check out The Art of Charm wherever you get podcasts and at www.artofcharm.com. Right. Yes. Those people are, are idiots. Um, I, I think um, this is another example of the idea that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. These people have heard of a concept called free speech. Mm-hmm. And they think it means they can say whatever they want without any consequences. Mm-hmm. Now, my understanding of, of free speech as a concept means being able to, to express yourself without being criminalized, yeah. without being arrested and imprisoned by the state for your expressions. It's not the right to say anything you want in any circumstance without suffering any consequences whatsoever. And that is what those kind of assholes think is their... Right. Okay. Well. Uh, okay. I'll take. Uh, well, then it brings into question. You know, what about things like people being arrested for hate speech? You know, ultimately, you know, like you know, people will say, "Oh, well, well, where's the line?" You know, but obviously, at some point, we we do draw a line, and that line isn't necessarily an arbitrary line. It's a line that we've kind of agreed on. That is, you know. Or at which point we say, look, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. I mean, you just have to look at the arguments about immigration to kind of say, well, I wonder what these people are actually thinking. Because the thing is that I am technically an immigrant. I wasn't born in the UK. I have one parent who's from the UK. And I came to live here like 18 years ago. And You benefit scrounging. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? People... You know, people are like, if I said I'm an immigrant, I don't sound like an immigrant. And more importantly, <clears throat> I don't look like an immigrant. I'm a good kind of immigrant. White privilege is, is, white privilege is amazing, <sighs> isn't it? It's, it's one of those things people don't understand. And, like, the only way that I've begun to understand it is by keeping quiet. You know, it's yeah. about... 
you know, people talking about safe spaces and, th- you know, people discussing. And and I think there's there's this, almost this idea that, you know, uh, it's, it's a lot about projection. It's a lot about saying, well, okay, fine, everybody's equal, therefore I will treat everyone equally now. But not take into account what's happened in the past. You know, I, I yeah. like to try and think of it like a racetrack where, you know, you have your different lanes. They all have different starting points. You don't draw a white line across all the lanes to say, everybody, you're technically running, you're starting from the same point, run different different distances, you know? Yeah. Everybody <clears throat> has an issue, you know, that like almost everybody has some sort of maybe some privilege, but then they may lack some privilege in another way, you know? There's the whole intersectionality, which I find absolutely fascinating. Mm. But I think there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of reactionary kind of ideas going around at the moment. I'm seeing, I don't know if you heard about the Goldsmiths um, Women's and, um, what was it, Equal Opportunities Officer, you know. This, um, Baham yeah. Mustafa. Yes. And the whole f- uh, f- uh, fury about that, I, 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 was, I was absolutely shocked um, about how people were talking about it. You know, when people didn't even seem to like know who she was or what her job was, nice. they they kind of jumped on one little thing as a as an example of you know oh this is you know PC gone too far, but I always yeah that that was a that was a particularly abhorrent example and again it's it's it it really epitomizes a lot of the way in which these kind of discussions are done in really ridiculously unpleasant and stupid ways. Now, my understanding of that um, was that she had asked, asked, requested that a certain meeting be primarily for, I think it was yeah. w- women of colour, I can't women remember. Women of colour and non-gen- uh, non-binary gender. And non-binary, that's right. And this this request, this please, could this be done this way? Was turned was represented as if it was a banning, which it was not. It was a, it was a request, but it was turned into this is a this is people being banned. This is a restric- restriction on free speech. Um, yeah, crushingly, abhorrently stupid. Now, what what's interesting for me, someone who has never really found their. Um, position their comfortable home on the political far mm-hmm. left is seeing how these things divide people mm-hmm. and and how people who you would formerly have thought of as quite s- sensible left-leaning people suddenly become reactionary assholes because they're clueless white guys usually i think yeah. and i say this as a generally clueless white guy who is trying very hard to e- to educate himself about intersectionality about issues which i had minimal understanding of um issues around um uh, trans people and non people issues around s- sex workers and things like that um where i am trying very hard to learn educate myself and become less of an asshole and it's really easy turns out all you need to do is just Shut the fuck up and listen to people when they're talking. I completely agree with you. I, I have I have a feeling though, sometimes when people talk about PC environments, it's almost like, for example, political correctness is about basically 
not using slurs that have historical connotations of being very derogatory, right? But it seems that, mm-hmm. like, it's the very people who secretly would love to use those slurs are now using PC as a weapon to beat everybody else up. It's like saying, like, for example, it's the it's the worm tongue behind the king <laughs> going, you, like, uh, how dare you? And yet he's the one poisoning the king. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's these it's these wolf in sheep's clothing that are creating the reaction the PC environment to which everybody obviously reacts badly against. I, th- I think that yeah, it's exactly it. And and what I find well, not hilarious because it's so bloody awful, but sh- what shows a, a startling lack of self awareness on the part of these people is you open a newspaper or hell you look at the front page of a newspaper you t- you turn on the tv and on the you know all the main channels throughout you know the news any discussion program any of our utterly scummy press and you will find people talking about how no one is allowed to talk about immigration there's this myth and it's 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 bizarre this myth that you cannot talk about immigration and it's pretty much what anyone ever talks about. I know, and it's. It, it, I, I cannot get my, my my head around this cognitive dissonance. How can they genuinely believe these people who have who own newspapers, who who are invited onto um, TV panel shows, feel that they are being s- silenced from talking about what is one of the greatest non-issues in this country? I mean, you think about it. Like immigration has been going on in the UK since the late Pleistocene. I mean, why are these people? having an issue with it right now if basically immigration is what made the uk the uk you know i mean if you if you look back far enough there's no lines but at the same time at the same time you know i like i think obviously you have to treat everything within its own context but I, I, I find um, I find this idea that there almost is the, there's this inherent britishness that people have which I don't think excludes other people. I don't. I, I, I don't see how you can create a, a a fantasy of what it means to be British in a bid just to exclude other people. No, it's 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 abhorrent, and it's but it's part of a long history in this country and other countries of scapegoating minority communities. Mm. And the reason people still do it is it still works. You will make political capital. You will um, convince people and you will um, gain followers through the politics of fear, the politics of scapegoating people who are in any way um, different. Um, It's a successful strategy. Make people scared, turn them against each other and guarantee that they will never challenge structural oppression and structural inequality Uh, it's yeah they do it because it works exactly and you don't need to to be a historian to look at it and think this is really badly thought through um and if i was let's say a british muslim i would be properly terrified Mm -hmm. 
How can you be properly terrified? I remember reading in the Sunday Mail where these Muslim gangs were going around London enforcing Sharia law. <sighs> Next time I hear that, honestly, I'm going to rip the paper in half. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Why papers in the first place? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It was on the paper. It was on. It was left on the train. <laughs> it's bad for your health. Friends, don't let friends read the mail in the express. It's it's one of those. It's it, it, it to me like people talk about us living in a very leftist. Oh, the best word I ever heard. The best oxymoron was leftist, uh, left totalitarianism. Yeah. And I, you know, there was uh, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite contemporary philosophers is Slavoj Žižek, who is a Marxist philosopher. He's a communist, but mm. it, and I, I love him for that. You know, I, I'm really big fan of him. But he, he, there was a, recently he did a video about the totalitarianism of uh, politically cor- uh, political correctness, and I completely mm. agree with him. You know, there is this, it's, it's to me, it's this weapon that is used by the right to bludgeon everybody else because they've seen how effective it can be. You know, they've, they've, yeah. you know, like racism isn't a structural problem. It's actually just a, a shaming mechanism to, you know, get at people you don't like. And that's not what, you know, like, that's what the right yeah. sees. You know, it's, it's almost as if, like, oh, calling somebody racist is just a perfect way to silence them. Oh, look how they silence us by calling us racist. No, we're saying that you're racist, so be quiet and listen to some people of color, you know? Um, but the thing is that, obviously, there, there's this whole idea of tolerance, which is abhorrent. Tolerance implies inherent problem. You know, it, tolerance implies that there's an inherent conflict that needs to be overcome. And that's not necessarily true. I think we should, you know, develop our language to actually say, well, maybe there isn't an inherent conflict in the way that these cultures operate. You know, let, let's not just, you know, barricade ourselves behind our walls and throw ideological grenades over the wall. You know, <laughs> that's why, you know, like when when I'm looking at, and when I'm looking at, you know, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and obviously we have the peace walls, we've got the flags situation, which is always wonderful. Oh, I yeah. went to, um, I went to, um, I was in Dublin recently, and I went to uh, the Kilmainham Jail. Mm-hmm. And Kilmainham Jail is really well known for ha- housing political prisoners of the 1916 uh, Easter Rising. Right. Yeah. Um, but obviously, but the funny thing is that was only five percent of who were in the jail. So mm-hmm. it's obviously a disproportionate narrative. But the Easter Rising was so important that Kilmainham Jail is a very, very important jail because of that fact. And um, it's given me quite a perspective on basically the colonial kind of uh, effect that Britain had in Ireland. Yeah, uh, but that's a very, very different story to the colonial effect that it happened had in any uh, uh, like in, in any country, and 
people don't seem to see that their you know colonialism is an overarching term for colonial spaces in all these different countries you can't just use you know the experience of one group of people to kind of say well what about this kind of group of people because i've heard this i've heard this uh, used oh well you know you can't relate to oh yeah about the atlantic slave trade but what about the irish slaves I don't yeah. know if you've come across that as well, and I think it's ridiculous. I'm not you don't use my colonial past to try and subjugate someone else's. They're both as bad. They're both bad, you know. Yeah, and that it's a very it's a very strange kind of argument. I mean, I mean, on the, 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 the on the, the whole Irish I'm colonial thing. I mean, I mentioned I'm Cromwell briefly earlier. You don't need to get much more. You know, you don't need to go much further than that to see the the, the, the full full force of it, but. Um, I think that kind of comparing mm-hmm. oppressions is exactly the kind of thing which results from this kind of perversion of of the political discourse and this and this this idea of of a political correctness as something harmful. This idea that there's a culture of victimhood it's it's pernicious crap. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the things I found strangest about this is. My understanding of political correctness and what people mean when they say political correctness, it sounds like what I think of as one of the most basic British values as as so commonly um, trumpeted, which is basically just minding your own business and being polite. Yeah. Politeness, it, you know, we're constantly told making, you know, you know, sort of not having great grand emotional responses to things and just being basically courteous and and proper, even in the most bizarre situations, is something people claim as distinctively distinctively British. And yet, suddenly, if, when you're faced with, you know, an immigrant, suddenly that doesn't apply anymore. So I, f- I find that strange that that um, tolerance isn't, yeah. The, the tolerance aspect of political correctness is seen as somehow problematic for a British people. But coming back to what you were saying before about about uh, tolerance as a r- r- red herring, I'm comfortable with with a tolerance as a starting point, at least. If a culture of of enforced tolerance means that bigots don't feel comfortable expressing their bigotry. I'm not interested in policing what's in people's minds. I'm interested in them not behaving like assholes. So if that means they're they're walking along the street and feel constrained from racially abusing people, I'm fine with that because it it, it creates a less toxic public environment and it means they're much less likely to to, uh, pass on their their foul opinions to others. Um, so yeah, I'll start with 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 intolerance. If, if these people feel that their right to racially abuse people in the street is being oppressed, uh, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with that. Obviously, the the, the their point is like I, I feel sometimes that then if you like you have this to- tolerance, it's almost like uh, oh look, you know, it is almost like a shield. It is a shield against well. Obviously, if I'm being suppressed, then you know there's some there you know there's something being hidden here. You know what I mean? Like, for example, I've been watching the X Files recently. <laughs> oh, wonderful, great show. I never like I never because I was too young to watch it when it was out. I I I know that probably makes you feel old, but <laughs> everything makes you feel old. That's fine. Carry on. I, I was never watching it when I was younger, so it was kind of like it was it's a very new experience for me. It's absolutely fantastic, and 
like there's always this kind of idea that there is this government cover-up on level five or level seven of clearance and all this and you know sometimes it does feel (laughs) as if you know people are like well if i'm being told to be quiet it's because i'm hiding some like because they're hiding something there's this you know machinating force uh behind Hmm. everything there's a great um there's a great video um on youtube uh by the rap news right and the yeah, it's uh, it's called okay. Juice Rap News, and it's about the New World Order, and it's basically it's a kind of it's a wonderful kind of look at all the different viewpoints that people have outside of the normal broadcast channels. You know, uh, I like yeah. trying to, and basically they set it up as you know, there's the the um, person behind the desk is basically talking to, first he talks to Russell Brand, because obviously Russell Brand does his videos on the trues, you know, the true news. Yes. And it's how, yeah. you know, Russell Brand, who is basically, a, a, you know, who has got a lot from, he's got his podium from capitalism. You know, he's got his podium from being um, a movie star, from being this personality. And yet he's talking about, um, you know, a revolution in the streets and you know people find his kind of like self-promotion kind of disingenuous in what he preaches you know mm-hmm. and then they've got a you know conspiracy theorist who's talking about the illuminati and that you know we as people were at the bottom of the pyramid you know indebted to the system which is basically capitalism lizard people yeah. and, all that. and then yeah. what they do is they bring in you know the Bilderberg, you know, the the William Bilderberg, who is the, you know, the the basically the representative of the New World Order, and he's re- that, but he is the most insightful out of all of them because he basically says, look, you know, like the thing is the the pyramid that you've drawn extends further down. You as a, like you as a white male, right? You're not at the bottom of the pyramid. Think about, for example, women. Who are second-class citizens in most countries? You have people who are who work in sweatshops or prostitution to actually live, and then there's people who are the non-human creatures of the planet who we exploit for not only food but for our own resources in other ways as well. The thing is, yeah. if you uh, like, think about you know, for example, he points out the slaves that built the White House, you know, mm. and he says, look, if you ask any of those kind of people, they'll tell you the New World Order is you. And of course, the uh, the conspiracy theorist says, "No, I'm a victim. We're all victims of the system." And uh, the the reply to which is, "And that's kiddies is how the pyramid ensures its existence. It's ultimately by unable uh, our inability to envisage our position within this pyramid, we're never able to deal with it. Because if we have yeah. to, and I think this is the the problem is that people think they're, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid. They feel like it." Because they don't have the empathy to, well, they don't have the view to see what life is like below them because, you know, they feel hard done by. So if somebody Mm. is even worse, you know, how do they feel? You know, and it's not that, it's not that you have to shut up if you, if somebody else has got things worse than you. It's just, you have to understand where you are. It's not about being shut up. It's about saying, actually, I'll listen. And I, I think that's a, that's a really important thing because this is the same thing that people use with 
alternate histories. I, I'm sure you've heard of the alternate historians. Oh, and it's this yeah. idea that, oh, well, we're just keeping, you know, we're uncovering the truth. You know, we're finding things that aren't, you know, uh, oh, well, what about this? What if? What if? What if? And you're just thinking to yourself, look, you haven't even looked at the evidence, you know? You've picked, cherry-picked things out to fit your own narrative. Why do you think we're, we're, we're saying be quiet because you're talking nonsense? If you, you know, I think there's something in people's attraction to kind of New World Order conspiracy theories and um, lizard people conspiracy theories. Really, any cons- any conspiracy theory that, that imagines a a, a yeah, government, a secret world government kind of thing, is it kind of in the same way as prophecy and millennial religions that imagine an end time it's based on the idea that someone's in charge and however evil these people may be there is something reassuring about having an understanding that you look at the world and you see complexity and and you see chaos and you see unpredictability it's very very reassuring to think that actually someone's got the steering wheel because the, the, the alternative which is that it's random as hell um, most people are not as smart, not, not that smart, selfish, um, s- self-interested and not planning for the long term. That's terrifying. That's absolutely, absolutely terrifying. I think something about conspiracy theory, which is a kind of infantilized way of looking at the world, is that like, mummy and daddy may be angry, but they, they love you and they're in charge. But I completely agree with the uh, comment about infantilizing i think i think we do need a better and more i think a a kind of a deep view of time when it comes to the world and like this is why i think for me archaeology is so important in that it has a social and political action as well you know yeah and i think it's one of these wonderful areas of study that isn't just about digging about in the past. I've said this so many times is that archaeology is everything, you know, but yeah, I think people often think I'm crazy and I probably am, you know, like I realize that, (laughs) you know, when, when I say archaeology is everything, you know, well, it's not rocket science. Actually, archaeology of, uh, I've seen archaeology of like, um, cold war, like rocket sites and stuff. So, rocket yeah, science. Yeah. Awesome. Of, uh, is it, is it uh, Wayne Cocroft who's, who's worked on some of that stuff? It's quite yeah, fantastic work. Exactly. And then, so, you know, like people say, oh, it's not brain surgery. Actually, when you look at the history of... Archaeology brain surgery. I mean, just, just thinking about what you were discussing earlier with <laughs> Sorry. the um, um, prison in Dublin. I don't know if you know Laura McAtackney's work on, on the prisons primarily in Northern Ireland, but also in Ireland as well. I mean, that's archaeology of, of recent prisons. I mean, you know, it's, we are everywhere. No, exactly, exactly. But people don't think, you know, like people see innovation as purely creating new things that can be used. You know, that's the, the power of science is to give us new technology. And, you know, that, that's the, that's the way we move forward. But, in some ways, we have to look back to look forward. We have to be like, what is it, Yanis? You know, the ancient god who's like facing both ways. 
you yeah, know, again, yeah. to me, you have to be able to look, you know, to the past and to the future at the junction of where you are, which is the present, right in the smack bang in the middle. And I, I find it disconcerting how people tend pri- to prioritize things as if it's a zero-sum game, that if you do more of this one thing, then, you know, you've put it, uh, you've put everything else at risk. And I, th- I, don't, I, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I don't know, how, how do you feel? I mean, has, how, how have things changed since you started doing archaeology? Um, what well, kind of how, things? How has your kind of view of what archaeology's role changed? And, you know, maybe, like, how the people around you treated archaeology as archaeologists, how, how do you feel that's changed? Or do you think it's always had this kind of, like, social and political action and this kind of drive? I think one of the things that's really changed for me, and it's, it's notable that not a lot has changed. I mean, for me, archaeology is still an incredibly in, enjoyable hobby that I've been fortunate enough to make uh, something of a career in. So I'm very happy with that. But what I think has been the most powerful sort of transformations for me in the way doing archaeology has affected my thinking in the world, my understanding of the world around me, has been through quite materialist perspectives. Quite so the, the, the understanding that part of archaeology is the study of the interactions between humans and the material world that we create, encounter, and recreate. And some things for me there have been really kind of eye-opening and transforming of my my, my understanding of the world and my place in it. For example, the understanding that when while we think of the material manifestations of society, the, the, the material world around us, as a manifestation of the society that we inhabit, it is in fact the collected manifestations of every society that's come before us. And that this isn't a purely abstract idea, that actually we are hugely restricted by this. The, the fact that we are 21st century people living in, let's say, 19th century houses does actually impact on us. And so this material heritage, this archaeology of a society that came before us, hundreds of years before, is is there, is there constantly in our lives shaping it, is profoundly troubling and yet a very important thing to think about and, and conceptualise. For example, um, I think the idea of um, nuclear families is an arcane one whose whose time has long passed. The idea that a family is is of two parents and of children has never really applied, and it doesn't really work in any way. Um, but one of the reasons it sustains and lasts is that the housing in this country, the, the the infrastructure for housing, is based on the idea that that is what constitutes a family, and so to try and change it to try and and create more complex, more progressive m- models of what families look like, we would have to affect a massive material change. Um, and the material, in its sort of blind obstinacy, resists that change. I've come to view the material world as a fundamentally right-wing yeah. thing, which is not particularly constructive, but it's it's... It's an important way of way of understanding the relationship between human beings and 
material culture. And for me, that is that's at the heart of archaeological thinking. So that, so this this has been something which has really expanded my my, my understanding of the material world. The second part, and this is something which is really part of my current work at the moment, is archaeology humanizes the material world. And this may seem obvious for most of archaeology, but I I work a lot in the sort of recent past um, archaeology of the modern world. What some people call contemporary archaeology, but I don't think contemporary is a very helpful term here, but the archaeology of the modern world, of the 20th century and the um, 21st century there's you know we're surrounded by technologies that look amazing technologies which are flabbergastingly complicated but and there's a risk that those those will give us a a a almost a dehumanized view of the world this idea that the things we use are built by robots in factories that in modernity everything is technologized over-technologized, depersonalized, that we inhabit places that are what Marc Auger called non-places, like airports, you know, places where, which are just for passing through. Now, I think from an archaeological perspective, from looking at the world, we see that this is a lie, that actually any illusion of dehumanized technological complexity is yeah is an illusion that actually behind it there are ordinary people doing quite mundane tasks that keep things going anyone who's i don't know done sort of a network and you know managing um, computer networks managing large you know large um manuf- manufacturing things under- understands that what looks sh- shiny and gleaming and e- efficient is not it actually relies on people's of tacit knowledge that there's a, there's a guy somewhere in the in in the uh, in in the workshop who knows if you want to get this machine to start you have to hold the button down and um, kick it in a certain way or it won't start. So archaeology sh- shows us the people behind this kind of inhuman edifices of of the modern world. And I, and I found that um, the, the idea that I've found to approach this that's been most helpful is this idea of re- re- reverse engineering. I don't know if I've talked about this before. This idea that, I mean, reverse engineering is a, a very old-fashioned concept. It's the idea that you get an object, an artifact, maybe if you're a, a car manufacturer, you get one of your um, competitor's cars, and you take it apart to try and work out how it works the way it works what makes it faster than your car, what makes it more fuel-efficient than your car. And you work from the object back to the problem it was designed to solve or the technology that was used to, in- to invent it. Now, that's a fundamentally archaeological yeah. way of acting. And we're seeing that more and more. with the, Because technology is progressing so fast, we're seeing this archaeological reverse engineering perspective being used in startling places. So, for example, there's an early microchip, one of the earliest, um, obviously by modern standards, incredibly s- simple and arcane, even though it's barely 30 years old. Um, a microchip which the original blueprints don't exist anymore. The original manuals have been mm-hmm. have been lost. So someone basically excavated the microchip, 
grinding away layer after layer and recording as mm-hmm. they went. So that was literally the only way of understanding it. Yeah. You're seeing this now with early um, um, NASA uh, um, data that was c- collected from some, some early um, moon probes. They don't have the machines anymore that can read that um, data. So s- some of the guys in California have been finding these computers. They're finding them in old barns, um, finding them in scrap heaps and, re- and restoring them. So they can basically excavate through this arcane data. Yeah. This kind of archaeological perspective, this is this is going to become this is changing what archaeology means. It change it's archaeology changing to reflect a new kind of relationship between people and the material world. And for me, this is an exciting way of understanding things, and it's an exciting contribution that archaeology is making. And I realise I am rambling. <laughs> That's like not hell. a problem. I, I like hearing you. Um, Hey, yeah, it's no, definitely. Fun. And actually, you've had um, you've dug up yourself a little piece of the past to drive around in, haven't you? Caused quite a stir on Twitter. I see you got yourself a new car. That's tiny. Yeah. Well, I mean, new car is kind of an is kind of the wrong word because it's not it's new to me, but it's not like I had an old car. This is the first car I've ever, I've ever bought. I've been startlingly crap about getting on the road i i learned to drive two years ago when i was 31 i've got my first car now as in i i bought it less than a week ago um and it, it's an artifact of course i've got no of no illusions about it that is. you're an archaeologist um, i mean i'm it's surprised kind of cool, that you yeah. don't have to crank a handle at the front you know um i'm hoping i don't have to start, start it that way i'm um i'm not terribly technological um but I've been reading classic car magazines since I was about 16. I love, I've always loved classic cars, um, but I mostly admired them from afar. Um, and when I was 17, again, I didn't have a driving license or anything, but a friend of mine, his brother had an MG Midget, and he tried to um, p- persuade me that I should buy it. He took me for various various um, drives around it, drove around with the um, top-down. I mean, it was a tiny, tiny car. And it was probably falling to bits, but it was cute as hell. And your ass is about two inches off the road, 30 mile an hour, it feels like 60 miles an hour. It was great fun. And so that and all these classic car magazines really stuck in my mind. And I think it kind of drip dripped in and it was inevitable really that when I first did buy a car, I'd get an MG Midget. Um, So the car is five years older Mm -hmm. than me. It was made in 1976. Um, it is, of course, like any great British classic car should be. It's a, a British oh, racing green. Um, I've not driven it very far yet. As I say, I only bought it four days ago, but I'm planning to take it out this weekend. And I'm scheduled in time to spend on the side of the road waiting for the AA to come and pick me up because, you know, this is the reality of gorgeous old cars. Um, so, yeah. It, it may turn out to be a terrible idea. It may turn out to be the most fun I've ever had. Well, what I do know is it's impractical in its total, near total lack of any space for bags whatsoever. I mean, literally, you couldn't put a s- small suitcase in it, um, let alone go to, go to Sainsbury's and, and go sh- shopping. Yeah. Um, it can't go very fast. Um, I've... I've taken it. I've got it up to fifty on the driving driving around London. 
I think I may be able to get it to 65 miles an hour. Um, and I would not want to take it any higher than that. I will probably cruise along happily at 60 and let everything <laughs> overtake. Yeah, I can imagine. It, it, it does look like a very, very small car. and It's see, a tiny I, car. I, like, I, I'm, I'm not that tall. I'm 5'7", so I, I probably, I probably, you know, like, it's probably a good fit for me. But you were saying earlier that, like, you don't feel like uh, you're too tall for it or anything. Oh no! It, it's it, it. I fit in it quite comfortably. I'm about six foot. My my wife's about the, the same. We fit in it fine. Um, it just feels a bit like, like like a clown car. It looks a bit like a clown car. It looks like the doors are going to fall off, the wheels are going to fall off, and a bunch of fake smoke's going to come out of it, and everyone's going to clap. <laughs> the boot opens and like now, balloons come out and like confetti. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that, that, that may be closer to reality than I, 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 I want to think about. Oh, yeah. If it isn't now, I'm sure as hell going to install one now because, you know, that's the way it has to be. But, I mean, I live in London and I have for years. There's absolutely no good reason to own a car in London. There's no practical reason to have a, have a car. So that, for me, was an argument for buying an impractical car. Um, I don't need it to commute. I don't. Um, I can't take it up to IKEA and pick up a bunch of a bookshelves in it or anything. It's purely frivolous, which is fortunate because this is the most pointless car in the world. And I'm hoping that that me and the car will be very happy together for oh, many I, years. I to come. wish that too. I wish that too. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap up. We're uh, gaining on time here. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me at this time in the morning. Uh, Thank you. I think this is. I think we've covered archaeology, intersectionality, cars. Yeah, we no, I definitely, definitely. And uh, obviously, if people want to kind of, uh, if people are interested in what you do, where's the best way to play way to find you on the internet? Um, find me on on, on Twitter is probably the best place to get in in, in touch with me. Yeah. Um, um, under I'm um, Gabe Mashenska, if you <laughs> can spell my name, um, and yeah, yeah, that's probably the best way. And if you're not on on Twitter, I'm eminently Googleable, and then you, you can email me. The the, the university <laughs> website is e- easy to find and has a more sensible photo of me than some of the ones <laughs> you'll, find, you'll find online. I do like that that comes as a very good, very good warning. Yeah, don't 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 do the image search. Don't do the image <laughs> search. Well. <laughs> I don't know yet. I do like no that, you that. know um, you, you seem to pop up with a few other other people that kind of uh, do the Twitter sphere stuff. You know, I think I think archaeology is quite uh, well connected. Uh, like I had a show recently with Hard Williams, uh, which was uh-huh. a really really great oh, show yeah. about uh, archaeo- uh, death and archaeology. Uh, I, I I assume yeah, you, know, yeah. you know him. I know Howard. And his oh, excellent yeah. blog as well. It's, it, so, isn't it funny how it's a small world, isn't it? it archaeology is a small world, and that, that has its um, good side and its bad side as well, but I like to think uh, of it as generally a no, positive. Definitely. Well, positive. anyway, yeah. thank you yeah. very much for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll bring you back uh, yet again to talk about, well, whatever, whatever. 
so look forward to it thank you very much for listening to the, another episode of the Anarchaeologist podcast remember you can check out a bunch of other great shows on the Archaeology podcast network including Archaeological Fantasies which is about debunking pseudo-archaeology or if you wanted to know about more of the new technology being used in archaeological digs go and check out Archaeotech this has been Tristan for the Anarchaeologist podcast goodbye This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.